0: Welcome to On the Road to No Place Left. This is Feeney, and I'm driving as we learn to share the gospel, make disciples, and reproduce leaders and churches until there is no place left where the name of Jesus hasn't been heard. This interview was recorded by some friends of mine who gave me permission to pass it on to you. It covers a variety of topics. It starts with a clear conversation about using money in a missions context. But as they talk about money, substitute the words time and energy you'll find this episode applicable across any work as you think about investing in leaders. But then they hit on some other key things by the end. Disciple making, strategy coordinators, or how funding relates to each. Let's jump in.
1: Let's move to normal times, if there is such a thing. You know, you were in Nepal, your goal being to facilitate a movement of multiplying disciples, churches, and leaders... And you had a certain amount of resources to, to utilize for that purpose. Talk to us a little bit about, about when you would introduce money and, and how it worked well and how it didn't work well.
2: Yeah. I mean, for normal times, you know, you just have to ask yourself are finances going to be helpful in this situation or is it become a, going to become a distraction? And um, what is it exactly you're trying to catalyze? For me, um, in, in my situation, you know, I've, I'm not the first and certainly haven't been the last missionary flowing through Nepal. And uh, so I had the honor of meeting certain people that had been invested in previously. You know, as I think back on that, one of the things that I, I did was, first of all, I didn't rush to be the next, the next foreign missionary to, to be the source for funding. I didn't rush to that. Even though it might have been logical, I might have been that person. And I don't know where this came from. I don't know that any one person gave me this advice. In fact, I think a number of people were asking me, what are you waiting on? This is a great national partner that's been fruitful. Why aren't you just jumping right in there and being the next funding source? And one of the most fruitful national partners I had, I waited over a year, maybe a year and a half before I got involved financially with him, and uh, just just ran with him and did what we could do without funding, you know. And what I observed was this guy wasn't going to quit. This guy, this guy wasn't doing it for money. And yes, his capacity decreased. He didn't travel as much, but he just made he made adjustments. He made adjustments, and actually, his work went to a new level on the local level where he had more access. And I really believe that's what God wanted to do with him. And then after about a year and a half, we, I introduced the idea of No Place Left. And that idea is a vision. I helped him to, to, to create a, to articulate a vision for what success would be and to break down the overall task in Nepal into district type uh, ideas. Like what would, it, what would it take to see No Place Left in a district? And what was funny was this particular brother I'm thinking of was more of a pastor by nature. He was an evangelist for sure, but he's very pastoral. And I asked him, I said, what would it take to be finished in this district he was working in? And he was, he was kind of offended. He was like, what do you mean finished? These are going to be my friends for a lifetime. I said, yeah, I'm talking about apostolically brother. I said, I want to stretch your mind a little bit. Let's study Paul. Like what would it take for him to say he was ready to move on to a new place? apostolically, but with lifelong friendships for sure. And man, that landed with him. And because he'd been doing evangelism in that area for many years and had many friends, but he started to think about creating local ownership of the task of reaching the entire district. And so he did that. He And so how that relates to money is, you know, by us inserting money into a multiplication mindset. And also just the the activity that leads to multiplication, the commitments, the principles, you know, by freeing up his time, he was able to he was able to see a a movement started in that district to the point where he developed numerous other leaders that took on other district adoptions. And he moved on to a neighboring district to, to repeat the process.
1: And so with this particular guy, what what form was the financial help taking? Were you paying travel expense were you paying him a monthly salary what what were you doing
2: yeah so we we had it in basically two different categories and no one wanted to use the word salary we kind of had to dance around that word that just didn't seem very like a very cool thing to be doing so we we called it flexible support
3: it's called obfuscation
2: (laughs) we got to dance around some of these terms you know so we don't no one gives us too hard a time about it, but, you know, part of it, I would give him some flexible supports. It's truly use for whatever he felt like he needed to use it for with no, no need to report back to me on anything. But before we would do flexible support with partners, we would often start with a, just a training budget where we would just give them some budget so they could travel by bus or train, um, do some basic things to set up trainings, um, it's pretty customary to provide food. Um, that's a, a pretty easy thing you can do, and so and so we would start with training budget, and and now that we would actually ask for receipts. So and and whatever they didn't spend, they were expected to give back to us. You know what I mean? And and if they went over budget, we'd have a discussion on whether or not we could handle that, or or whether they just had to carry the liability of that. I will say most often we would we would cover it as long as it was not incredibly over budget. So yeah, that's just how we handled it. Those two categories. Flexible support and um, and, and then also training budget.
1: And did you have sort of milestones in that where okay, if a guy is doing this, then we'll consider giving a training budget. If he's doing this, then we'll consider giving him.
2: Yeah, so it would start out with, you know, I think in North America they call it swarm training. You know, that's how we usually start out with these partners. We we they we just they jump in my vehicle and we go, and I just pay as we went. You know, but the the bottleneck was, was me. You know, it was my per, it was my presence to be there to 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 do that to pay those bills and do those things. And, uh, you know, once, once they were basically, we, we'd go through, you know, for a lot of these guys, I would model the training, you know, the model assist watching leave principle, I would assist them on other trainings and I would possibly just watch. And then they would be coming to me saying, you know, I'm getting a request to do this in this place over here, you know, and so we would multiply our efforts and that's when training budget would come into play. I just released those funds and, um, you know, we'd also do some tracking. We, we'd do some, um, that's that well this is really where tracking becomes you know it's, it's important for a lot of reasons but this is a this is a big reason too um we would track the controllables and non-controllables in training and that's not the subject of this call but at the same time at the, when it was at the point where i was releasing funding i felt like it's not unreasonable for me to be asking for some clear answers to what are the controllables who did you train what did you train when are you going to go back and follow up? Because we always did multi-phase training. We never did a one-off. We weren't campaigning a vision like a PR stunt. We were actually trying to change lives through multi-phase obedience-based discipleship training. And so it was always multi-phase. So if someone committed, I said, "Okay, well, tell me about the next three or four. Are you are those in your calendar?" <laughs> uh, but then then just ask for reporting. You know, um, you know, has anyone come to Christ? Any any churches started? So that kind of thing.
1: What I think you said is you would do swarm trainings, which basically the travel and so forth was funded by you. At the point where one of your trainers started getting invitations to go and train other places, and I assume they were an effective, fruitful trainer, you'd think about giving them a training budget, which you would work with them to account for, and they'd need to demonstrate who they trained, yeah. what they trained, that they actually had a plan. At what point would you start thinking about giving them flexible support?
2: Yeah. And before we jump to that, I will say that they were literally imitating. me. So not only were they going to new locations, they had a group of people that they were doing ministry with at a local, no cost context, right? Within walking distance. That, that they felt like were faithful enough with what they could access with no budget, then now they were inviting those people. They were filtering, right? They were inviting those people to swarm with them. So I wasn't just paying the expenses of the leader of the training. I was praying for the expenses of that second, third generation trainer that was coming up through them. As far as flexible support I, that I tell you where that really shifted was when people became committed to seeing no place left uh, in a in an identifiable segment uh, geographically and people group wise. So in our context we we, go, we would go according to districts and then we would give them a shorter list of the, of the people groups in that district, not the whole country, but a little bit more manageable. but when they you know when they were committed to that and they were um, building team toward that, that it really became a, I mean, it, it could be done vocational. I'm not saying it was impossible to do it that way, but really the way I framed it was, are you willing to sacrifice your bivocational career and put that on pause for three years? See, I see, I didn't view it as, hey, your ship's come in and now we're going to pay you for three years. And they didn't view it that way either. A lot of times, some did if they didn't have anything going really. Some had more going for them in the business world than others. Let's just put it that way. Nobody saw it as their ship coming in. I mean, it just wasn't that much money. I mean, it was enough to get by. And where your parents didn't gripe at you for what are you doing with your life? You know, but (laughs) they were able to pay their own bills and things like that. But it wasn't like an extravagant thing. And so the shift would be whenever they're making multiple trips, into a a least reached area but one more component I would add to that would be not only are they are we are we trying to support them for that two weeks they're out of out of Kathmandu in our case but what are they doing back in Kathmandu as well you know I understand there's a little recoup time but there's a lot of opportunities for networking and local training and uh, you know, just just serving partners there and kept it doing well as well.
1: How many flexibly supported workers were you did you have when you were there in Nepal?
2: The most I had was four. Right. Even when I had four, I would divide some of the work because I had foreign team members. And I would let them lead out on that. I was kind of modeling or maybe even assisting some where I would introduce them to that relationship and let them develop their relationship through that through that activity of discussing funding and debriefing their trips and things. So I, I would actually, I released that to some of the, the foreign missionaries that I was developing. So, I mean, if I was doing, in my mind, if I was doing it right, I never had more than one. Uh, my wife had a couple. She had a couple of, uh, of ladies that she was uh, supporting to catalyze movement as well and, and to train broadly uh, among women, uh, which was super exciting because, uh, you know, I can't tell you how many women I've had in my trainings that, truth be told, that they they never actually believed they could, they could understand what I was saying just because I'm a man. And my wife was able to bridge that barrier. And so she had her own, she, she kind of watched me and I modeled it for her. And then she went on to do that toward the last half of our term in, in Nepal. When you
1: had four people on flexible support, how many were there who, where you were helping with training budget? I'm just trying to figure out what the proportions were roughly.
2: Yeah, these are great questions, Mark. Um, So what would happen, it was kind of a trickle down type thing. And, you know, what was so fascinating was um, if I was playing it cautious and there was a lag time, I cannot tell you how many times the guy I related to or or my official team members related to, that those guys would burn through their flexible support and turn it into training budget for their disciples. They wouldn't even use it for themselves they, 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 they just live with their parents and get by with as little as they could. And they would turn it into the training budget. And that's how, you know, you've got a keeper. I mean, you've got somebody who's really being generous. They're not holding on to it. They're not trying to hoard it. So many times I would be baffled about how these guys were just barely making it. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't keep any of the money I gave them. They just gave it away and turned it into training budget because they had the vision for it. And so those are guys that I would, dev- and I, and it's funny, they wouldn't even complain to me. I'd have to find out through back channels and that's what was going on. You know? Yeah. A lot of times they would give away their flexible support is how, is how that training budget would multiply.
1: And so what would be kind of the ratio between trainers and what I would think of as full timers, basically?
2: That's a great question. I, <laughs> it varies obviously like most things, but I mean, in the, in one case, I know at least 10, if not 11 w- trainers, this guy c- w- that were highly effective, you know, and they could reproduce the training themselves on their own without the main guy that I was giving flexible support to. Um, but there were others, I think the others were more at an average of four to five. Okay.
1: Yeah. So se- several times as many trainers as full timers is the,
2: there yeah. would be more trainers, yeah. clearly. Because yeah. the way I look at with the five levels of leadership, if anyone's familiar with that, you know, at the end you've got that strategy coordinating type person who's taking on a gap. And as you move from right to left and the levels of leadership from level five being the strategy coordinator, the way I view the levels of leadership is almost like that subsequent level is the team for the next level. You know, so if you've got an SC, his team is an emerging group of trainers would so be that level five movement trainer. And, and, and same with the trainer, you know, it's almost like the team for that trainer becomes those people that are not only church planning, but even multiplying church. That's the people that they're really teaming with and solving problems with.
3: Bill, did you have any more questions you wanted to ask? Oh, uh, well, I don't know if it's questions or maybe it's just emphasizing for our listeners. Um, one key thing I picked up from Will, he went into a ministry area, a country such as Nepal. And obviously, there have been many people working there before, and there were willing, competent locals who were eager to have him support them. And he had peers, even Westerners, who were on his case a little bit. When are you going to find somebody to support? And I think I heard him say. He paused, he looked, he observed a year, a year and a half, and he found people who maybe had been doing the work with outside support previously, currently had no outside support, but were still doing everything within their capacity. And he decided to invest in them. I I think I heard that. No, I'm glad I you
2: emphasized think... that point. That's 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 exactly what I did.
3: Now, see what what I do is listen to what you're saying, which then I find these principles for, for all over. A principle is new guy goes into place. There are lots of locals who say, "Pay me." There are lots of outsiders who primarily do ministry through paying locals, and they encourage you to jump in and find somebody to support. You took another approach, which seems to be in the long term much more effective. I heard you say you did spend time and effort communicating vision. And when you saw people implementing that, then you instituted some graduated process of supporting training, doing swarm training, and moving it on up the, the scale. But it was a very graduated kind of thing. I heard you say that uh, you look for people who were doing it without your support. I heard you say that You didn't talk about a nationwide vision or a 64 district vision. I heard you say you spent quality time helping guys who were doers looking at bite sized pieces, i.e., a district, and communicating to them what would this look like when you left, which is not a particularly South Asian way of looking at things. But you spent time to create an idea and insight. There may be, there may come a time around here if I have done things right. They don't need me. I can move on, which was apparently a new insight for some of your people. At that point, then you began equipping them. What was it going to take to out of this mass of people that were evangelists or evangelizers, build the capacity in them to multiply and raise up people who? Literally could saturate a district or a UPG. I heard you say you brought research and insight on evangelistic needs, level of evangelization, location of UPGs all over that country that your key guys didn't necessarily have access to that research. But you made it available, and that shaped not only where they went next, but how they plan to structure their ministry so that they accomplish whatever it's going to take to reach that particular district. You didn't overwhelm a guy with a nationwide need, but you gave him reasonable chunks of things and walked him through a process so that he could leave it behind as the Apostle Paul did and move on with no guilty conscience. That, that's a little bit of what I just heard you say. Did I, did I hear that stuff right from you, Will? Man, I, I'm learning a lot
2: from you, just your manner, the way you're conducting yourself, this I heard from you statements. I'm, I'm definitely going to imitate that in the future when I'm coaching. Yes, to answer your question, yes,
3: that, that's, that's you reflected that very well. There, there's a half dozen other things right here. And I heard you say, you worked in Asia where everyone is relational. And it took you significant effort to have a few people begin thinking what you call apostolically. So everything was not relationship based, and that it took some effort to accomplish that. But after you had done that, people could take ownership for a chunk of lostness. People could take ownership for a chunk chunk of unreachness, which. Team about only after they transition from. Let me just say a typical Asian. If I'm not related to you, you don't exist. Because I'm related to you, you do exist. A typical Asian worldview to an apostolic worldview of what needs to be done. What's it going to take? And mm. did, did I catch that correctly from you, Will?
2: Yeah, no, that's that's really right on the money. That's what I was trying to communicate. If I may share one thing, a caution. Uh, to, to people that are maybe newer to the field or working among uh, missionaries that have been there for quite a while and they have numerous partners that are seeing, um, you know, generational growth and maybe you're filling that strategy coordinator role uh, as an insider. Uh, what I want to say is don't rush to accumulate the hottest people you see in the community. Like if you're, don't go shop for national partners, and don't compete for them. That's really a no-no in my mind. And, and, and I never, and I'll even say, I never tried to protect my national partners from those people who might do that. Um, I, I was aware that some people viewed success as a mission, as a missionary by how many national partners they had uh, or strategy coordinators. Uh, to me, that, that can, You can get to that place in a lot of ways that aren't necessarily helpful and move the needle on losses and actually increase and don't really represent a net gain in turn of new leaders into the kingdom. You can just recycle a lot of your old national partners over and over again as people compete for them or they shift to other organizations and teams and things like that. So the, the, the next thing I want to say almost seems like it's almost contradictory, but bear with me. When I was in leadership meetings, I would claim to have, you know, more strategy coordinators than some people thought was appropriate. And they would ask me, well, are they fourth generation leaders? And I went, well, no, they're not. Because that's not what I'm basing it on. I'm basing it on their commitment to see no place left in that district and to do whatever they can within within the power of God to see that happen. And so the, the strategy coordinator uh, uh, title should not be seen so much as a role or as an outcome that you give people who are seeing fourth generation fruit. In my view, it's, it's more of a commitment to a function. Am I going to coordinate strategy in order to see no place left in this district? Um, that's a shift in thinking. And I think uh, the, to, 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 to see success is how many national partners that I have that um, are already fruitful is not really going to move you forward into finding those next leaders. So maybe we've gone beyond money, but I felt like since we're on the topic of strategy coordinators, that might, might be worth saying because I feel like we, we brought some new players into the equation by, by starting at the grassroots level and just training broadly and inviting more people into the task.
3: Okay, Mark, let me jump in and do the application here. What is fascinating is a return to roots. The concept title strategy coordinator originally was a title for someone who had a burden and a vision and a what's it take attitude to reaching a group, irrespective how many streams and generations that person had. Strategy coordinator was not a title based on. Numerical accomplishment. It was a title based on calling, burden, vision, and investing effort. Through the years, as things always change, the title became a title to be strived for with some acclamation, and you got there by generating a certain number of streams and generations but what will has just enunciated is a powerful tool and understanding of who do we want to relate to our goal in relationships is not necessarily somebody who has a certain level of accomplishment because quite frankly using non-biblical methods you can get to four gins and four streams without much difficulty. But the zeal, passion, the focus and sense of calling to a section, people, district, whatever, you can work with that person and help them get there in a biblical way. What, What did you hear me say? What I heard you say was Will is right. That
1: focus on sort of vision and ownership Rather than numbers of generations is the appropriate criteria for, for calling somebody a strategy coordinator. Mm-hmm. I, wanted, I wanted to go back to something you said, and I was thinking about a baseball team. you know if I owned a baseball team, there's a couple ways for me to get a champion. And one way is to spend a bunch of money buying superstars from other teams. Another way is for me to really focus on the the farm team system and raise up internally the superstars of the future. From the perspective of the sport of baseball, the first way doesn't really make baseball any better, that we're just shuffling the superstars around between teams Mm -hmm. The second way improves the state of the game. We've generated more better players. And it seems like what you were saying is in the missions business, there are a lot of people who are trying to build their team the first way. They're trying to buy up the existing stars. And that your goal was the opposite, was to raise up the guys of the future.
2: I was playing the long game. You know, I, I went there to give my life. Um, our first term was actually in Bangladesh, and you couldn't have convinced me that I wasn't going to retire there when I first started. Um, Nepal was something that God surprised us with, and we were there for 10 years, which I still don't think was long enough. And so, yeah, we were playing the long game. And so we weren't just investing money. Money, you know, this whole caught topic of money, you know, was secondary to our man hours and our love and our life and our emotions and, you know, our, and and, and even risk. It's a life and limb traveling across a place like Nepal and not only to myself, but to my family. And you, you can't put a price on that, you know, and, and, and also you can't put a price on that. And, and, and that's going to, that's going to strike more deeply in the heart of those you're discipling than any paycheck. And any of our national partners you would ever meet would say exactly the same thing. That's the reason they all cried when we left, was because they knew we'd we'd given our lives to that. So you're exactly right. I've heard people say rightly in the past that uh the life of a church planter or, or a missionary is is a choice to live a life of obscurity. To to learn to find the joy in that is 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 a really serene place to live. It's a good place to live. And I love it. I actually, I I really love it. And it's okay for me to find the new guy and let other people develop. Uh, And it turns out, you know, um, you know, if if the only resource you bring to the table is financial, you find yourself with really no other option, but to go shopping and networking only and not really disciple making. And to me, that's, that's a shortcut that's, that's not going to lead to a completion of the task. It's going to lead to conflict and it's going to lead to really a dishonor to the bride of Christ. When I'm convinced that when the Bible says, when Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few, he's not just talking about new believers. He's talking about your new leaders. that are going to be your new strategy coordinators. I'm thinking that far ahead. So What I want to say is can't we be can we not be content with the day in day out work of even weaving it into our evangelism to say, hey, man, I want to see you come into the kingdom. I want to be in the birthing room when it happens. Praise God. But God's got a mission for your life. And it may be he's calling you to reach your entire family. So this whole vision casting uh, finds its way into my evangelism. I'm looking for laborers. And so you've got to bring more to the table than money, or or all you're going to do is reshuffle the kingdom.
3: I think there's some excellent financial principles. I think there's some excellent discipleship principles. Summation, I heard this man say, if all you bring to the table is money, you're not really growing the kingdom. You're just rearranging the players. When you invest your life, and men and women disciples know it, Uh, There's a bond there that continues long after you leave a country, but there is an impact on them as to how they will reproduce what they received from you. Uh, What I'm hearing Will say is some of the most effective people in the country he was in for a decade learned how to love downstream and invest in people downstream where funds may or may not have been part of the equation, and they learned it from him because it was lived out and we all know modeling is not the best way to teach somebody something modeling is the only way to teach somebody something like this i mean no exceptions i mean you either model it or you're you're not you're not teaching it and what will modeled is continuing downstream probably today because of of what he modeled and, and what he invested
0: You can connect with me and other content at ontheroad.link. That's ontheroad.link. Check out the show notes for a link to more about the five levels of movement leadership. This is Feeney, just passing on an interview from some friends. Thanks for listening. The On The Road podcast is to encourage you and your church to share the gospel, make disciples, and reproduce leaders in churches until there is no place left where the name of Jesus hasn't been heard.